let's on to the analysis of The Music of the Ainur, a part of The Cimmerillion by J.R.R. Tolkien. And unlike some of the poems that I've done in this podcast, I definitely did not memorize the entirety of this excerpt from The Cimmerillion. Um, so, that being said, this is long enough where I feel like I'm not going to be able to go line by line here. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read each paragraph and give my thoughts that come to mind after each. As a as an introduction to this, I'll just say that the reason I chose this is mainly because I because I found so much meaning in Mythopoeia that I wanted to see how Tolkien had written this into his uh, most cherished of stories, his most cherished of sub-creations. And I think that Mythopoeia, even though it's poetry, it really, it really tells his theology in a in a direct way, as much as is seen, as much as I've seen from Tolkien. Whereas this is, even though Tolkien said that he very much disliked allegory, I see this as an allegory of the central, the central logos of what Tolkien believed creation to be, and how it relates to us, how it relates to creation as a whole. And I think we'll see that in the music of the Ainur and how he presents Melkor as being in some ways an allegory of Satan. So we will get on to the first paragraph here. There was Eru, the one who in Arda is called Eluvatar. And he made first the Ainur, the holy ones, that were the offspring of his thought. And they were with him before aught else was made. And he spoke to them, propounding through them to them themes of music. And they sang before him, and he was glad. But for a long while they sang only each alone, or but few together, while the rest hearkened. And each, for each comprehended only that part of the mind of Luvatar from which he came, and in the understanding of their brethren they grew but slowly. Yet, ever as they listened, they came to deeper understanding, and increased in unison and harmony. I think the first thing to observe here is that Tolkien presents even the subcreation as having a an unmoved mover, a central mind, the one at the at the trunk of creation, at the root of creation, and that is Iluvatar or Eru. But in another way, um, I said in in the analysis of Paradise Lost, of satanic introspection, that Satan some ways presents a an aspirational Gnosticism, 
when he says that by thee more than half perhaps shall reign. He wants to reign over half, if not more, of creation. And we'll see how that's reflected in Melkor's aspiration. But I thought of that as a very Gnostic idea or a Gnostic concept. And I think even though Tolkien, I have no reason to believe that he was not a uh, an Orthodox Catholic, I see him presenting another Gnostic idea here, another Gnostic concept in presenting the Ainur, the Holy Ones, as being the ones, I apologize, as being the ones that actually sing creation into being. Of course, they're still the offspring of Iluvatar's thought. So they're directly connected, but in the Gnostic uh, interpretation that I've heard, the reason... I should say, God cannot create anything imperfect, being perfect himself. So nothing can come directly from a perfect mind that is not perfect. And we see that the world is indeed imperfect. There's the problem of pain, the problem of suffering, um, there's ugliness and evil in the world. And so in the Gnostic interpretation there, God couldn't have created the world directly. He had to use what they call a demiurge, an intermediate creator that is responsible for the corruption and, and, and imperfection of the world. And I think we'll see Melkor as being that type of imperfect demiurge here. But Melkor is merely the merely the most powerful and, and intelligent of these demiurges, these Ainur. So, and they were with him before all else was made. And he spoke to them, propounding to them themes of music. And they sang before him, and he was glad. So, um, I think it's interesting here that it says, and he was glad. I think this is an echo of the Genesis story where after every facet of creation, God says, and it was good. It was good in the eyes of God. But they sang each alone or, or but few together. They sang each alone or but few together. And the rest hearkened. The rest, uh, this means that the rest encouraged their singing. And so we we see each of these Ainur as being a facet of the mind of Luvatar that hasn't been harmonized and hasn't been brought together in this fullness of creation. For each only comprehended that part of the mind of Luvatar from which they came. And the understanding of each other grew but slowly. Yet, ever, ever as they listened, ever as they listened to each other, they grew in, they grew into deeper understanding. And in understanding, they increased in unison and harmony. So there's this, 
Tolkien has this uh, beautiful idea of creation being most distinctly expressed in music. And we'll see that throughout this throughout this excerpt, but um, it reminds me of, uh, I think it was Pythagoras. He, he had this theory, this concept of the, um, the music of the spheres, that the universe creates this harmony of the, of the heavenly bodies moving in the, in the heavens and creating this harmony of music that if you attune yourself to, you will be in harmony with existence. So I think he's kind of echoing that. Next paragraph. And it came to pass that Iluvatar called together all the Ainur and declared to them a mighty theme, unfolding to them things greater and more wonderful than he had yet revealed. And the glory of its beginning and the splendor of its end amazed the Ainur, so that they bowed before Iluvatar and were silent. So now we see the Ainur after after Iluvatar expresses to them the main central theme that he wants them to sing into creation, they're amazed, and I, I see them as being daunted by the task that's given to them by Iluvatar. And they're silent. They're, they're shocked into silence. And then Iluvatar goes on to say, Then Iluvatar said to them, of the theme that I have declared to you, I will now that ye make in harmony a great music. And since I have kindled in you the flame imperishable, ye shall show forth your powers in adorning this theme, each with his own thoughts and devices if he will. But I will sit and hearken, and he will and be glad that through you great beauty has been awakened into song. So we see here that Iluvatar is is telling them the theme, but he wants this theme to be surrounded and filled out with each gift that each of the Ainur express in themselves. We think of this as um, if you've ever made music at all, you, you, you have your baseline, you have your baseline, and then you add different themes onto that baseline. And if it's, <laughs> if it's a song that's consistent and coherent and in harmony, then, then each theme that's added onto that baseline is going to be a rendition, um, a play on that central theme. But it's going to be a little different. It's going to have its own personality and its own beauty. And that's what Luvatar wants the Ainur to do here. Is he he gave them, um, it says, let me catch up here. And since I have kindled in you with the flame imperishable, ye shall show forth your powers in adorning this theme. So he's kindled in then in them the flame imperishable and here since he introduces this flame i i wanted to um 
read a part of the Bible because I feel like he is expressing the Pentecost here in Acts. And this will be specifically Acts 2, uh, verse 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where, where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit was giving to them utterance. So, we have this fire that distributes among each of the disciples. And it gives them the Holy Spirit, which I see as, in Tolkien's interpretation here, the flame imperishable. And we see in Acts that they started speaking, the disciples started speaking in other tongues as the Spirit was giving them them utterance. So it's still personal, and it's still a creative expression of each of these individual uh, sub-creators, but that flame imperishable is given to each. So it comes from the creator, from the, un, from the, un, the unmoved mover. And if we remember back to Mythopoeia, he says in, um, I think it's the second to last stanza, he says, And poets shall have flames upon their heads, and harps whereon their faultless fingers fall. So there's this, there's this beautiful uh, naturalness of their sub-creations, because the the flame imperishable has been instilled in them, in their very nature. And I think it's beautiful to think of this music as being a natural expression of innate beauty that's within the individual, within each of the Ainur, within each of the disciples in Acts here. Okay, so he says that he will be glad that through them great beauty has been awakened into song. Next, then the voices of the Ainur, like unto harps and lutes and pipes and trumpets and veals and organs, and like unto countless choirs singing with words, began to fashion the theme of Iluvatar to a great music. And a sound arose of endless interchanging melodies woven in harmony that passed beyond hearing into the depths and into the heights and the places of the dwelling of Iluvatar were filled to overflowing. And the music and the echo of the music went out into the void and it was not void. Never since had the Ainur made any music like to this music though it has been said that a greater still shall be made before Iluvatar by the choirs of the Ainur and the children of Iluvatar after the end of days. Then the themes of Iluvatar shall be played aright and take being in the moment of their utterance, for all shall then understand fully his intent in their part and each shall know the comprehension of each, and Iluvatar shall give to their thoughts the secret of 
fire being well pleased. I think this might be my favorite, my favorite portion of this is that he says that the voices of the Ainur were like unto all these beautiful instruments. And in the same way, they were like countless choirs singing with words, singing with the logos. And we go back to um, we go back to back to Mythopoeia, and I remember making this reference to the Genesis story, to the creation story, where God tells Adam to name the aspects of creation. And then we have another idea of God speaking creation into into being. And there's this idea of when the flame imperishable is is instilled in the in the souls of the minds of creation, if that makes any sense, then words and music and utterance and wind, wind and spirit, speech, is a creative force, a pure creative force that is able to actually create a tangible existence and is able to fill the void. And then it will not be void. And we have, we have it here. It, it, it says, even though the Ainur made no music like to this music in all of memory, it has been said. There's this, there's this promise that greater music shall be played after the end of days and take being in the moment of their utterance. So I think that's a reference to the the end of the end of the history of of Arda and it's referencing Re- revelation obviously. Um, when I'm going through the Lord of the Rings, especially the three, um, the Fellowship of the Ring, I should say the six, but we'll say the three. The Fellowship of the Ring, the Two Towers, and the, and the Return of the King, especially the appendices after the Return of the King, it seems so, um, in some ways, nihilistic to me that the age of man is always faltering, it's always faulty, it's always corrupted and being corrupted there's always this this sight back to the age of elves that was more pure and the elves have this constant sorrow in them but here it's saying that that after the end of days the music will be played aright and i think it's 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 a, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful promise that Tolkien is presenting here. Next. But now Iluvatar sat and hearkened, and for a great, great while it seemed good to him, for in the music there were no flaws. But as the, as the theme progressed, it came into the, 
They came into the heart of Melkor to interweave matters of his own imagining that were not in accord with the theme of Luvatar, for he sought therein to increase the power and glory of the part assigned to himself. To Melkor among the Ainur had been given the greatest gifts of power and knowledge. He had a share in all the gifts of his brethren. He had gone off alone into the void places, seeking the imperishable flame. For desire grew hot within him to bring into being themes of his own, things of his own. And it seemed to him that Iluvatar took no thought for the void, and he was impatient of its emptiness. Yet he found not the fire for it is with Iluvatar. But being alone, he had begun to conceive thoughts of his own, unlike those of his brethren. I'm sure this is a fault of my own. Um, but in a lot of ways, I, I feel a certain sympathy for Melkor here, especially in the way that Tolkien presents this motivation. He went off alone, he went off alone into the void. And we almost see Melkor here as being a curious spirit, an individual. And Tolkien even says here that he was the most powerful and knowledgeable of the Ainur. And this goes back to the analysis of Paradise Lost, is that being the most powerful and knowledgeable, we think of um, Satan saying, If only God had made me some inferior angel, I, I had stood then happy. Right? So being second only to Iluvatar, Melkor thinks highly of his abilities. And he feels like he can fill the void. He's thinking... Why doesn't Iluvatar fill the void? There's, there's this immense potential that God is leaving untapped. And he's impatient. He's impatient for its filling. Um, we can even think of the eating of the, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve wanted knowledge. They wanted to be like God, knowing good from evil. That's not necessarily a bad thing, in my opinion. And there's so much complexity in this concept here that I'm not going to go into here, but these motivations aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves. We'll see late, later on that Iluvatar, Tolkien's analogy for God here, will work out all things for good. So Melkor's motivation here, it's, it's, it's complicated and it's not necessarily evil in itself. Um, I think the beautiful, one of the beautiful aspects of Paradise Lost and this music of the Ainur is that Melkor and Satan, they're very sympathetic. 
And we do ourselves a disservice when we see evil as being something simplistic and repulsive. Evil is attractive, at least any formidable, realistic form of evil. It's attractive and sympathetic. And it's only when the intentions begin as, in some ways, um, I'm, not, I'm not going to say good, but in some ways noble. So Tolkien, I think, is doing a great thing here by not presenting Melkor as some parody of a, of a tipped-tailed devil. And neither did Milton. So, he had been given the greatest power and knowledge. And he, has shared, and he had a share in all the gifts of, gifts of his brethren. And he had gone off alone into the void places. There's this idea, there's this theme of Melkor being an individual. And I have my own tendency to walk alone in my own life. But... So that's why it speaks to me so deeply. So personally, as this thought scares me, is that I am personally attracted to being an individual and going my own route, finding voids that I'm intent on filling myself. But Tolkien here is saying that that was the beginning of Melkor's downfall. At least his, the seed of Melkor's corruption was this impatience and his desire to find the fire apart from Iluvatar, to have his own fire. But the way Tolkien describes it, there's no fire to be found apart from Iluvatar because the fire was given by Iluvatar. Okay. And he had thoughts that were un unlike. He began to conceive thoughts of his own uh, unlike his brethren. So he's separating himself from the harmony of creation. Next. Some of these thoughts he now wove into his music. And straightway discourse rose about him. And many that sang nigh him grew despondent. And their thought was disturbed, and their music faltered. But some began to attune their music to his, rather than to the thought which they had at first. Then the discord of Melkor spread ever wider, and the melodies which had heard, which had heard before foundered in a sea of turbulent sound. But Iluvatar sat and hearkened until it seemed that about his throne there was a raging storm, as of dark waters that made war one upon another in an endless wrath that would not be assuaged. So, he now wove these individualistic, antagonistic, um, bastardized thoughts into his music, into this music of creation, and the Iluvatar is allowing this to happen, essentially. 
We don't know this quite yet. At this point in the story, we could imagine that Melkor might win. And I don't know if I've expressed this directly by this point, but Tolkien sees this musical composition as a metaphor for creation and existence in general. Like I said, that music of the spheres, there's this base level reality, or at least this representation of reality that's expressed in music. And that's very tempting for me to agree with that. There's something about music and harmony. I even said it at one of the beginning episodes of this podcast. There's just something about harmony and music that seems to be so in intuitive and natural that when we hear harmony, we know it to be beautiful. We know it to be right. We can even think of how um, sound waves move through water. You can look up YouTube videos of how sound waves move through water and how it disrupts it. And I think that's something that Tolkien is saying here is he's saying that it seemed about his throne there was a raging storm as of dark waters that made war upon one another in an endless wrath that would not be assuaged. Next. Then Iluvatar arose, and the Ainur perceived that he smiled, and he lifted up his left hand, and a new theme began amid the storm, like and yet unlike the former theme, and it gathered power and had new beauty. But the discord of Melkor rose in uproar and contended with, and contended with it, and again, I really thought I was going to get that this time. <laughs> and again, there was a war of sound more more violent than before, until many of the Ainur were dismayed and sang no longer, and Melkor had the mastery. Then again Iluvatar arose, and the Ainur perceived that his countenance was stern, and he lifted up his right hand, and behold, a third theme grew amid the confusion, and it was unlike the others, for it seemed at first soft and sweet, a mere rippling of gentle sounds and delicate melodies. But it could not be quenched, and it took to itself power and profundity, and it seemed at last that there were two musics progressing at one time before the seat of Iluvatar and they were utterly at variance. The one was deep and wide and beautiful, but slow and blended with an immeasurable sorrow from which its, chief, its beauty chiefly came. The other had now achieved a unity of its own, but it was loud and vain and endlessly repeated, and it had little harmony but rather a clamorous unison as of many trumpets braying upon a few notes. And it essayed to drone the other music by the violence of its voice, and it seemed that its most triumphant notes were taken by the, uh, by the other and woven into its solemn pattern. It's a beautiful idea. It's, 
I said I said before that when I'm reading the, the three main books, um, the elves always have this this noble sorrow about them. Tolkien describes them, especially in uh, Rivendell and um, like Galadriel. Um, they have this they have this somber joy about them. But there's always this, this somberness to it. There's this sadness, this sorrow. And I think anyone who reads The Lord of the Rings will see this, this authentic wisdom in the elves. They don't have this naive joy that the hobbits have. Because they've just seen too much. They're aware of too much. They have too much awareness of the universe to be um, conspicuously happy about it. But in the same way, they have a durable joy and worshipfulness of, of Iluvatar that's stable and enduring. And I think Tolkien's saying this here is that the first... The first music, it was soft and sweet, a mere rippling of gentle sounds and delicate melodies. But the other, the other music, the music of, the music of Melkor, and the other Ainur that joined in with him, it's a braying of trumpets upon a few notes. We can think of uh, some rap music. <laughs> Um, but even this brain of trumpets upon a few notes was taken into the solemn pattern of the central theme and woven into its, into its music, woven into its solemn pattern. There's this idea from, uh, Nietzsche is that, um, there's no. I'll just use a line from uh, William Blake that I'm that I'm going to use in the next um, episode. Is that um, progress only comes from contradiction or from contrast? And Nietzsche talks about this, and uh, I think it's probably the gay science, maybe. But he talks about how when you're listening to music, there's this. A lot of great songs have this discord in them. It, it can't be the whole song or else it's just incoherent, but the greatest harmony in a song is often brought up to the surface and into the greatest awareness and the greatest profundity after a succession of discord. Um, we think of uh, Be like Beethoven or Chopin, like a lot of that great music has a lot of discord in it. It has a lot of disharmony, a lot of seemingly chaotic elements to it. But then it only brings out the harmony when he, when those composers pull it all together. All the more. Okay. So. Now. Next. In the midst of this strife, Whereat the halls of Louvertor shook and tremor ran 
out into the silences yet unmoved, Ilúvatar arose a third time, and his face was terrible to behold. Then he raised up both hands, and in one cord, deeper than the abyss, higher than the firmament, piercing as the light of the eye of Ilúvatar, the music ceased. Okay, so I should have said in the last um, paragraph, there's this idea that I don't really understand, and I've been listening to some Jonathan Peugeot uh, Symbolic World YouTube videos, and he talks about the right and left hand, and I, I still don't quite understand the symbolism behind the right and left hand, but, but Iluvatar lifts up his left hand first with a smile, almost entertained by this discord excuse me um and then after it seems like Melkor is a mastery Luvatar lifts up his right hand and now we see Luvatar lifting up both hands and the music that comes as a result of that and even his face is terrible to behold. We think of this immense power. It pierces the music and the music ceases. And next. Then Iluvatar spoke and he, and he said, Mighty are the Ainur, and the mightiest among them is Melkor. But that he may know, and all the Ainur, that I am Luvatar. Those things that ye have sung, I will show them forth, and ye may see what ye have done. And thou, Melkor, shalt see that no theme shall be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempteth this shall prove but to find instrument in the devising of things more wonderful which he himself hath not imagined. So here I think it's a beautiful response to Melkor's motivation to create something apart from Iluvatar, something apart from all of his brethren. He wanted to create something separate. And we see this as a mirror of Satan's motivation in Paradise Lost and in... Um, some of the biblical interpretations of the, of the fall of Satan. Satan wants to have something of his own. And it's, it's so tempting. I feel that temptation. I want to have something that's, that I can call my own creation. Something apart from any sense of, de sense of determinism or essentially being some some type of slave to this unmoved mover. But in reality, any time we try and do that, we're still contributing to the music. That's what Tolkien's saying here, is that even though Melkor wanted to create something for himself, by himself, Iluvatar is saying, even those things shall be interwoven into his creation, into his logos. Next. Then the Ainur were afraid, and they did not yet comprehend the words that were said to them, 
and Melkor was filled with shame, of which came secret anger. But Iluvatar arose in splendor, and he went forth from the far regions that he had, that he had made for the Ainur, and the Ainur followed him. So now he's... So now the Ainur were all afraid because they saw the expression of the power of, of Iluvatar. And even Melkor is afraid here. And he's filled with shame. But there came also a secret anger. And the whole story of the Lord of the Rings is the result of that secret anger. So even though... So now... In Paradise Lost, we have Satan accepting in his introspection that he's come to know that there's no beating God directly. There's no beating God at, at his own creative game. Yeah, he has to work in contradiction to that primary creation. Or, or at least he feels like that's the only way for him to have a an existence apart from that ultimate authority, that ultimate mind. But all the while they're playing into this this harmony. So Aluvatar arose in splendor and went forth from the fair regions that he had made for the Ainur and the Ainur followed him. So they're going in into the void here. So next. But when they were come into the void, Iluvatar said to them, Behold your music. And he showed to them a vision, giving to them sight where before there was only hearing. And they saw a new world made visible before them. And it was globed amid the void, and it was sustained therein, but it was not of it. And as they looked and wondered, this world began to unfold its history. And it seemed to them that it, that, that it lived and grew. And when the Ainur had gazed for a while and were silent, Iluvatar said again, Behold your music. This is your minstry. And each of you shall find contained herein, amid the design that I set before you, all those things which it may seem that he himself devised or added. And thou, Melkor, wilt discover all the secret thoughts of thy mind, and wilt perceive that they are but a part of the whole, and tributary to its glory. I think it's a bit ironic here because isn't Iluvatar in some ways giving Melkor what he wanted? He's saying that he's saying that behold your music, this is this is your minstry, and each of you shall find contained herein amid the design that I set before you all those things which it may seem that he himself devised or added. So, even Melkor's deception and attempted contradiction of that central theme is interwoven into the melody. That's beautiful, I think. But Melkor does not like this. He feels like it's a trick that's being played on him. So he's going to try and keep working in contradiction to that creation. And we saw the same thing with Satan. 
and it's just this um, this pitiful slavishness. Um, I that word seems strange, but I think it's the only way that I can express it. This pitiful slavishness to contradiction, this reaction. It's this um, this rebellion for the sake of rebellion. And we see it in Melkor, we see it in Satan. Okay. Um, so that was the music of the Ainur. And there's so much depth to this um, in all of Tolkien's work that I really need to dive a lot more deeply into it. But I think that um, sums up a lot of what I thought while going through this, uh, this, ec this excerpt. Um, and next... I will be attempting to, in some ways, give an alternate argument. Something that uh, a real fan of Milton, but a fan of what I would consider to be a misinterpretation of Milton, personally. But I still think it's worth reading to present the best argument on the side of the spirit of Satan in, in some ways. And that will be the beginning of The Marriage of Heaven and Hell by William Blake. I'll see you next time.